Coming up on the Keto Camp podcast, we have the carnivore MD himself, Dr. Paul Saladino. If you're going to do medicine, you better know what's wrong. When you take your computer to a computer specialist or your car to the mechanic, if you've got something rumbling around under the hood, they don't just put in a new stereo with bass so that you don't hear what's going on under the hood. When you've got something you know, in there, they actually look at the engine and figure out what's going on. But in Western medicine, we just put in a new stereo that's louder with more bass. So you can't hear what's going on under the hood, but we don't correct that. I'm a certified functional health practitioner who's on a mission to educate 1 billion people. I've been obese for most of my life. From rock bottom to the top of the mountain, I am passionate about studying ancient healing strategies like fasting and the ketogenic diet and curating this information on the Keto Camp podcast. My goal is to bring you the thought leaders in this space. My name is Ben Azadi, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Greetings, Keto Campers. I am excited to share a brilliant gentleman with you today, Dr. Paul Saladino. And he's gonna talk all about the carnivore diet. You might've heard of it. It is getting more popular throughout the years. He's gonna share a story first and foremost on how he got sick and what he had to do to kind of repair his body. Then he's gonna get all into the carnivore diet, how to do it the right way, what are things to look for, the science behind the carnivore diet. His new book that's coming out soon, The Carnivore Code, has over 425 references in it. He's a man who is definitely science-based. He's also gonna talk about some very interesting topics such as the plant toxicity spectrum, how plants could actually be doing much, much more harm than good, especially for those who have leaky gut or some sort of autoimmune. And he talks all about the living the radical life. That's his thing and he's gonna share all about that He's also going to talk about the side effects. He's also going to share the benefits of eating animal meat and the organs of animals. Also, he's going to talk about the Game Changers propaganda vegan-based film, which is a great film production-wise, but very poor with its science. And he's going to break down and really debunk a lot of the information, the bad information that was shared on the Game Changers film. So I can't wait to share them with you. And before I do, I want to thank you and say you are amazing. Out of all the podcasts out there, you chose this one, the Keto Camp Podcast, and it means so much to us here at Keto Camp. Our mission here at Keto Camp is to educate and inspire 1 billion people on planet Earth. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. What we talk about here is all about keto, intermittent fasting, and today, carnivore, all things ancient healing strategies. So if you're interested in any of that, you're definitely in the right spot. I want to encourage you to leave a rating and review for this podcast if you haven't done so already. It really makes a big difference for the show. This episode of the Keto Camp Podcast is sponsored by my favorite cooking oil and oil for dips and salad dressings, just my favorite overall oil, which is olive oil, but it has to come from a quality source. A lot of the olive oil you have in your grocery store that's sitting on the shelf has been there for quite some time. Think about the transportation and then it's exposed to light. That kills the components of the olive oil, the antioxidants and the polyphenols. That's why I love my friends over at the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. They get their olives from four different regions all across the world. It's seasonally based and it's first harvest pressed, meaning more antioxidants, more polyphenols. And then it's fresh pressed, put into a bottle, put on a jet and flown to my door. It's amazing. I get three bottles delivered every single month. It is the highest amount of polyphenol olive oil I have ever tried. It'll burn your throat, make your tongue a little fuzzy, all good signs. And I worked out a deal with the folks over at the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club to get you Keto Campers a $39 bottle for one buck. If you head over to KetoCampOliveOil.com, remember that's camp with the K, KetoCampOliveOil.com, you could claim that $39 for one buck. Hey, be sure to take a screenshot of this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast on your phone and post it on your Instagram. You could give me a tag and Paul, Dr. Paul Saladino, a tag, and I'll be sure to see that and share it on my story, and we'll get some other Keto Campers following you back. 
My Instagram handle is at thebenazadi. That is T-H-E-B-E-N-A-Z-A-D-I. And Dr. Paul Saladino's Instagram handle is carnivoremd. Take a screenshot, tag us. I'll be sure to share it. All right, let's get into this episode talking all about the carnivore diet with Dr. Paul Saladino. Dr. Saladino is the leading authority on the science and application of the carnivore diet. He has used this diet to reverse autoimmunity, chronic inflammation, and mental health issues in hundreds of patients, many of whom have been told their conditions were untreatable. In addition to his personal podcast, Fundamental Health, he can be found featured on numerous podcasts including The Minimalist, The Model Health Show, Bulletproof Radio, The Dr. Gundry Podcast, The Ben Greenfield Podcast, Dr. Mercola, Health Theory, Mark Bell's Power Project, and many more. He has also appeared on The Doctor's TV show and will release his first book in 2020 titled The Carnivore Code, Unlocking Secrets to Optimal Health by Returning to Our Ancestral Diet. Dr. Paul Saladino, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast, brother. It's so good to be here, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm pumped to talk all things carnivore and so much more. And we'll get into all the things that you're doing, your new book, your podcast, which is phenomenal, which is growing really fast too. Uh, And before we get to all that, Paul, I want to know your story, man. I would love for you to share your story, get as deep as you'd like. Like what got you involved with what you're doing today? I mean, my dad's a doctor. My mom's a nurse. I grew up at the dinner table with conversations of atrial fibrillation, warfarin, blood pressure, and cholesterol. So I've always been fascinated by it. And I think the other piece was that I hated, hated, hated bringing my car to the mechanic when I was growing up because I didn't like turning it over to someone that had to do the work under the hood. And I didn't know what was going on. I wanted to be able to fix my own car. And I think that as I grew up, those two converged. And I realized that this body that we inhabit is our conduit. This is the lens through which we view the universe, through which we experience life. And if we get sick, that experience is completely changed and the quality goes down the tubes. And it's like driving a car that has a timing belt that's off, that squeaks, squealy brakes, or a car that doesn't accelerate well, or that, you know, has a carburetor problem. That's not as much fun as driving a car that hums. And so I realized that we are a part of this bodily machine. Surely we all have heart and soul within us and passions, but we're a part of this bodily machine and this is how we experience the world. And I wanted this machine to be as tuned as I could be. And so I had to figure out what kind of gas I wanted to put in it. And I had to figure out how to fix it when it broke down and how to avoid it breaking down in the first place, how to do the regular maintenance. So medicine was such a reasonable choice because I didn't want to go to the mechanic. I didn't want to go to the doctor and have them say, you're sick. You should take these medicines and not know what to think about that. Just, you know, you go to the mechanic and they say, oh, you need a new axle. And you're like, I don't need a new axle. I I got this, you know, or you actually need a new axle. But in this case, I wanted to be the agent of my own health and the health of my family and the health of my friends and to be able to affect that in a profound way rather than turning that over to someone else. So I went into medicine, but I didn't go straight into medical school since my dad was a doc. I saw him kind of get crushed by medicine a little bit when I was growing up. He worked a lot. He's an internist. And I thought, that is not what I want. I want to maintain a balance. I was coming off of six years of vagabonding and adventuring between college, going back to graduate school. So first I went to PA school. I was a physician assistant, worked in cardiology for four years, and then I went back to med school. And the reason I went back to med school was because what I quickly realized as a PA was that the medical paradigm at large wasn't treating the root cause of an illness. It was really just symptom-focused, pharmaceutical-based, trying to just ameliorate the symptoms. Western medicine, mainstream Western medicine is about the what, what a disease is. It's about naming a diagnosis. But what was really fascinating to me was how to treat it, how to affect it fundamentally. What were the root causes? How do you reverse it? The why. The why question has always been the most interesting to me. And so once I started working as a PA, I realized, oh boy, I'm not going to be able to do that as well as I would like within the framework. I'm going to go back to medical school and get my MD And throughout medical school and residency, I knew I wanted to do something that was focused on the root cause. There's lots of names for that these days. People call it integrative medicine. People call it functional medicine. I just think of it as damn good medicine. Like if you're going to do medicine, you better know what's wrong. When you take your computer to a computer specialist or your car to the mechanic, 
if you've got something rumbling around under the hood, they don't just put in a new stereo with bass so that you don't hear what's going on under the hood. When they've got something you know, in there, they actually look at the engine and figure out what's going on. But in Western medicine, we just put in a new stereo that's louder with more bass. So you can't hear what's going on under the hood, but we don't correct that. So that was really the genesis of it. So throughout medical school, throughout residency, I was always asking the question, what the heck is causing illness? And there's a lot of answers to that. But is there a commonality? Is there a unifying theory? Are there things that are threads connecting all of these? Are there common things that cause illness? And how do we get at those to do the most effective interventions to affect, to really change the course of anyone's health in a positive direction? So that was my own journey too. I had eczema and it was pretty bad at times. I did a lot of jujitsu in college and medical school. And at times had it to be so bad that I was hospitalized for sepsis and other complications from infected eczema and patigo on my skin. It was really bad. So I thought, whatever I'm doing now is not enough. And I kept iterating my own diet. And even when I was getting bad eczema, I was working really hard at my diet. I haven't eaten a standard American diet in probably 25 years. It's been intentional dietary choices, at least for the last 15 to 16 years. Originally, I was on a vegan diet. That didn't work out so well for me. I was raw vegan. I lost a ton of weight. I had horrible gas. I felt miserable. For how long? Oh, seven months. Probably just short enough to avoid catastrophic failure that comes with plant-based diets. Which we'll talk about. We'll talk about game changers on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, we can talk about it. But after that, I transitioned to more of an organic paleo, which I espoused for oh, probably 13 or 14 years and really was strict about it. You know, took things out, put things in, tried to do elimination diets, did low histamine, did low FODMAP, did low oxalate, you know, did AIP and and the eczema persisted. It's got rid of dairy, got rid of everything. The eczema persisted. What is going on here? Like, why am I still getting bad eczema? And it wasn't until really the second or third year of my residency at the University of Washington that I just kind of got sick of it. And I thought, what is going on? I'm eating the best diet that I can imagine. It's a fully organic paleo diet that's mostly autoimmune paleo. There's really not much in here that's going to trigger me. I've tried low histamine, low oxalate, low FODMAP, everything. And I'm still getting bad eczema. I had eczema at times so badly in residency that my whole lower back was broken out and kind of weeping. It was like a really nasty lower back eczema tramp stamp. It was bad. And, you know, that, that limited me. I, it was painful and it was frustrating and it was pretty big deal. So at that point, you know, paralleling that was my continuing medical education and my continuing thinking that a lot of what we see in medicine is inflammatory. A lot of illness we see is inflammatory. And I think that autoimmune disease is very closely related to that. And I would challenge anyone listening to this podcast to think of any disease that's not inflammatory in nature. There's maybe you can try and construct something, maybe an infectious disease like a pneumonia. But in in fact, I mean, you can ask the question, why did that person get the pneumonia in the first place? Why were they susceptible to the pneumonia? That probably has an inflammatory component affecting the immune system and our tolerance to that, that, that illness in the first place, lowering our immunity. So, so much of what we experience is inflammatory. I think that I've talked about this in talks that I've given throughout residency. I think that medicine today needs to create physicians who are inflammologists. They're doctors who treat inflammation. The schism within medicine, the division of the human body into organ systems does not serve the patient. It's a false construct. And it doesn't allow physicians to think about the way systems are connected properly. And that is what we need to do to help people get better. In fact, it's the opposite. Some listening to this podcast will be physicians or will be in the medical world and will know this firsthand. But from the inside, I will tell everyone that there's a lot of turf war within medicine. And when you're in psychiatry or endocrinology or cardiology or gastroenterology, there's a real ethos to stay in your lane, quote unquote, and not to do what someone else does. And that doesn't serve patients well. That is one of the reasons people do not get better. Because more often than not, the proximate cause of an illness is not in the organ system in which that illness is manifest right? If somebody has a problem with their thyroid, the problem is not in the thyroid, right? It's an autoimmune issue or it's something else coming from somewhere else in the body, usually the gut or other places. Yeah. The liver. Yeah. The liver in psychiatry. If you have a problem with your brain or the neurotransmitter balance or inflammation in your brain, 
that's not originating in the brain. You don't have an infection in your brain. You have an inflammation in your body. But psychiatrists are not trained to work with the rest of the body or to think about where the inflammation could be in the body. It's almost comical when we think about it. Like we are training physicians to be so myopic that they are overly specialized and they cannot deal with anything out there of the specialty. And they are discouraged from doing that. They are discouraged. If I'm in psychiatry, which is what I trained informally in my residency, I find mental illness and mental health quite fascinating and inflammation in the brain really interesting. But what I realized is that that inflammation is coming from outside of the brain, the gut, other places. You have to know about the gut. So I have to know about the microbiome, leaky gut. And I have to know about food. And that's going to affect hormones. So I have to know about hormones. And then I have to know about the skin. Maybe somebody's got an infection in the skin or something else coming in. You know, I can't just be a psychiatrist. I have to be a psycho neuro gastro immunoenterologist, right? Which is basically just an inflammologist. And this is the same way in all of the diseases we see. A rheumatologist can't just look at a joint with somebody with rheumatoid arthritis. You know, rheumatoid arthritis, people get deformity in their joints or their hands or other joints. The, the issue is not in the joint. The issue is systemic. They have to understand where is it coming from. So this was quite frustrating to me. And I think that this is where Western medicine needs to really wake up and kind of be awakened, be kind of shaken and say, hey, what you're doing is crazy. This is not helping people because the paradigm is wrong. And so that was always my goal, to understand how it all fits together, where it's coming from. And we see this. These diseases are all inflammatory. And so the coalescence of those two ideas, my personal struggle with continued inflammation of my own, continued autoimmunity, despite doing everything I thought was right, and this idea that everything is connected in the body and that inflammation is probably driving it, and that is usually, at least in somewhat, starting in the gut, which is connected with the foods we eat, and the foods are the biggest driver, led me to think, okay, something is wrong with the foods I'm eating. What could be triggering this now? What is left to do? And at that point, there was just this kind of crystallizing moment. I think I heard Jordan Peterson talking about his experiences with a carnivore diet. And I thought, that's a little crazy. It's a little crazy to think that plants are not good for humans, but all right, let me look into this. Let me look into this because this is really the only thing I haven't done. And I believe that I, if I am continuing to have eczema to this degree, there's something going on. So that began my sort of rabbit hole journey into the carnivore diet. I did some research and realized it wasn't as crazy as I'd originally thought, and then started doing it myself about a year and a half ago. And within a few weeks, my eczema had completely resolved and hasn't returned since then. But I also noticed pretty profound psychological benefits within the first few days, you know, more positive outlook, clearer thoughts, all kinds of things. And I thought, wow, this is cool. There's something to this. And then I just threw myself into it and what we will see, and we'll probably touch on a lot of this during the podcast, is that when we say that a carnivore diet might be good for humans, there are probably six to seven widely held beliefs that are immediately challenged that are just so interesting to explore. Humans need fiber. Polyphenols are good for humans. You know, what about your microbiome? Don't you need vitamin C? Can you get all the nutrients you need from anim animal foods? Isn't meat bad for us? Won't it give us a heart attack? Blah, blah, blah. So that's what's really cool about a carnivore diet now is if we accept, as I do, that animal foods are the ultimate foods that humans can eat and plants are really just survival food, which can be eaten intermittently or perhaps for entertainment, but don't really serve a unique nutritional role, then we're challenging basically every single widely held tenant of nutrition today. It's basically rocking the boat of nutrition in the most fundamental way that I've ever seen. Like it's, it's paradigm shifting. Woo. That was awesome. First and foremost, your story is really cool because I speak a lot about the broken medical system and I saw it with my father. My father had um, type two diabetes for most of my life. He ended up getting a massive stroke and passing away back in 2014. And I saw being in that area of watching my father dealing with conventional doctors, what it did to his health. But you see it because you practiced it and you actually were in the thick of it. So I love when you share about it because you see so many areas and you you're an authority on this. Uh, so I love that you share that. Thank you for sharing that. And you are totally right about the carnivore diet. First of all, what is your definition of a carnivore diet? You know... I don't like to be dogmatic about it, but for the purposes of conversation and communication, it's probably useful to define it. It's a diet that's entirely based on animal foods and excludes all plant foods. Now, in my book, I talk about this. There are versions of the diet that include some plant foods. If you want to, we could call this carnivore-ish. 
I think that can work for a lot of people, carnivore adjacent, whatever. And, and in the book, I have a spectrum of plant toxicity. And so I think that at a most basic level, it's a diet that's based on all animal foods. Anything you can hunt is going to be an animal food, right? So we're talking ruminants, beef, lamb, elk, buffalo, whatever. We're talking monogastric animals, pork, chicken, turkey. We're talking fish, shellfish, and basically, I think that's, that pretty much includes most of it. But, you know, dairy for some people, and we can talk about that. And then that's the majority of it. And so perhaps honey would not be a plant food. And it's just like, some people say, like, is honey carnivore? And it's like, look, that's just not, that's just too dogmatic. Like, who knows? But the biggest thing about a carnivore diet is it excludes plant foods. And then the subtle nuance beyond that is that it's a diet that appreciates the spectrum of plant toxicity and makes an intention to eat the less toxic plant foods and favor the animal foods. That latter definition would be more like carnivore-ish. So something along that range. But ultimately what we're all just trying to do rather than define a specific diet is give people tools to affect positive outcomes in their health if they're not getting what they want. So what do you think happened there with your gut uh, and the eczema and just your new sense of awakening? What was happening there? With, what did the carnivore diet do for you? You know, I can only hypothesize, but if we think about this, what did I do when I made a transition from organic paleo to full carnivore? There were a couple of things I did. The first thing was that I cut out all the plant foods. And as I talk about in my book, there's a whole section in my book about plant toxins. So this is something that's not talked about a lot, but there are many toxins in plants that I eliminated completely when I did that. And I think one could hypothesize reasonably that those plant toxins could be damaging to the gut. And we've all heard this colloquial term leaky gut. And I think it's gaining more and more widestream acceptance. And then if you look in the literature or the, even the academic world in medicine, leaky gut is known and you know, extreme sepsis. People can get you know, movement of bacteria into the bloodstream and get really, really sick when they're in the ICU. And so it's known that the, the, the gastrointestinal membrane, the epithelium in the gastrointestinal tract can become hyperpermeable in times of duress. And I think that there's a subclinical level of this that is probably happening in a lot of people in response to food, in response to food triggers. And this is sort of where the rubber meets the road. And my hypothesis, the premise that I advance in the book is that this is happening in large part in response to plant toxins. And these are things like lectins, oxalates, isothiocyanates, and polyphenols. And so people, if they're not familiar with my work, might kind of want to double take that and say, did you just say polyphenols are damaging my gut? And yes, I did. And isothiocyanates too, which are molecules like sulforaphane. Yeah, probably damaging the gut. And we can go down those rabbit holes if you want. But these are all what we would consider to be phytoalexins, plant defense molecules. They're not made for humans. This is not a benign or a symbiotic relationship between plants and animals. This is a, a chemical warfare that plants are doing toward humans and other animals that are seeking to eat them. And so these are not benign chemicals. And I debate soundly the concept of xenohormesis. I think that's been widely misinterpreted, and we can talk about that too. So I think that by removing plants, I removed all those toxins. And one hypothesis is that there was some activation of my immune system by these plants. There were compounds of a variety of shapes and sizes in these plants that were triggering my immune system because that's what eczema is. That's what psoriasis is. That's what Hashimoto's thyroiditis is. That's what inflammatory bowel disease is. That's what depression and anxiety, schizophrenia and bipolar are. They're inflammation. And where is the inflammation coming from? Usually from the gut. Why is it coming from the gut? Because the foods we eat are pissing off the immune system there. And we've seen this this model in things like gluten sensitivity. We're aware this happens. And there's evidence that for some people with like A1 milk proteins, this can trigger like type 1 diabetes. So this is a model that has been established. I just think that it extends much further than we imagine to many plants for different people. Now, is everybody sensitive to the same foods that I am? No. We all have our individual sensitivities, our individual chinks in the armor, so that if you're exposed to a food that you are sensitive to and you get inflammation, you might get disease X, Y, or Z. You might get rheumatoid arthritis. I'm going to get eczema and the next guy is going to get bad depression. And then the third girl is going to get Hashimoto's thyroiditis. But the proximate cause is inflammation. And beyond that, it's probably a discordance between what our gut wants to see and what we're putting into it. And I think there's a variable amount of sensitivity or I should say toxicity these plants can exert in different people. So I removed all that. I think that was a big part of it. And then I, the second piece is that by removing the plant toxins, 
had more space for animal foods, which are pretty clearly richer and better sources of bioavailable nutrients for humans. So I removed the toxins and I put in more nutrients. And it was probably the combination of those two things. Also in that process, I eventually went to a ketogenic diet of varying macros and different levels of ketones, which is going to affect my mentation or my mental outlook in addition. But the first part of the carnivore diet that I did, this wasn't really intentional, it was just how it happened. I used honey. So I actually thought, you know, I'm not in ketosis right now because I was eating carbohydrates on my, my paleo diet. I want to go gently into this. And if I'm going to cut out all the plants, I'm going to see what that does. And then I'm going to go ketogenic. And so for the first four or five days, I used honey and I probably was not very ketogenic, but even cutting out the plants without being in ketosis, I felt the psychological benefits. I felt something different, which is what's so interesting about my experience. And then I eventually stopped the honey and don't do carbohydrates on a routine basis now at all and can vary my sort of level of ketosis based on the macros that I choose. But I think it was the exclusion of plants, the inclusion of more nutrient-rich and bioavailable animal foods that created probably the, the change in my physiology and allowed the immune system to kind of calm down. Yeah, it makes sense to me because your gut stopped processing those foods that were poisoning you. Now you have all this energy and resources now just for the task at hand, which is your, your brain was able to function. So that makes sense to me. And then you got into ketosis. Uh, we know that there's a lot of benefits for the ketones in the brain. Did you try before your carnivore experience experiment, did you try doing a fast, like a, like a few days of, of a block fast or something like that? Or was that not an option? I hadn't tried it. I hadn't tried any extended fasting. I think probably the longest I'd fasted before then was maybe 18 or 21 hours or something, but never like a longer fast. What about now? Do you practice fasting? I, I don't do a whole lot of fasting now because I think that I'm at the weight that I want to be at and I'm under a lot of stress right now and I have a lot of commitments and stuff. And so I don't use that as a tool right now for me. I think it can be valuable in certain settings, but we need to be careful because it's powerful medicine and it's easily overused. I think that for my physiology, it's better to signal being in the fed state more often. I do intermittent fasting and I do some time-restricted feeding on a daily basis. It just works out for me well to do a compressed eating window during the day, something like six to seven hours. That works. And I usually eat my second meal of the day to the last meal of the day earlier in the day, like two or three or four o'clock. So there's a longer amount of time before I go to sleep. And I'm eating higher fat, animal-based you know, meals, so they're pretty darn filling. Um, and that works. That works well. So I do that on a daily basis. But in terms of longer fasting right now, it's not something I incorporate, not because I don't think it's valuable, but I think that for me, it's too much right now. I'm kind of, you know, I'm trying to walk that line gingerly. Yeah, I'm similar to you. I'll probably do a 20 hour fast, 18 hour fast every single day. And I'll do a five day water fast uh, once or twice a year just to get some of the, the maximum autophagy benefits. But other than that, I don't I don't do more than that. You mentioned in your book, the, the Carnivore Code, that's the name, correct? Yeah. What's the, the date for that? February 11th, 2020. It's available for pre-order now. People can go to thecarnivorecodebook.com and pre-order. And people who pre-order get an exclusive invite to a private question and answer session with me in December. Or you can go to my website, which is CarnivoreMD. There's a link to the book on there as well. Very cool. We're going to put both those links in the notes, so be sure to go pre-order the book. Uh, I can't wait to read that book. Uh, I'm really fascinated by this by this uh, topic, and I just love your work, so uh, I'm going to read it, and I'm going to just absorb all the information. I was working on it before I jumped on this call with you. It's So the book is fully written. We're just finishing the last edits. It's probably about 400 pages, and there's over 425 references. So I want it to be readable, but I also wanted to give people basically all of the science that I have gathered over the last year and a half about the carnivore diet, every aspect of the carnivore diet, whether it's the anthropology, the evolutionary story, the plant toxins, the lectins, the oxalates, the polyphenols, the acetylocyanates, or all of the nutrient relative, the relative nutrient availabilities in meat and all of the debunking that I do in the later chapters about um, meat causing cancer or shortening our lives or being bad for us from a cardiovascular perspective. I wanted to equip people with all of the references so that if they wanted to, they could go back and read it all. I mean, it would take a long time, but it's all there for people. Just like put it out there, just put the foot down and this is it. I love it. I'm, I'm going to definitely look at the references and make some videos from it as well. What is your favorite thing about the book? What is your favorite, uh, I don't know, topic, subject? What is your favorite thing about the Carnivore Code book? I love the anthropology. 
the first section of the book is the story of humans. So my podcast is called Fundamental Health, and I interviewed Bill Von Hippel on my podcast, which will probably be out by the time this podcast comes out. I've also interviewed Miki Bendor, who's a paleoanthropologist. I just think this story of where we've come from is fascinating. And though we don't have a time machine, we can't reconstruct it perfectly. We can make a lot of really good inferences from what we know. And it just, it's so fascinating. So basically the idea is this. Humans appear to have diverged from our primate ancestors about 6 million years ago. And before that, you know, whether it was chimp, bonobo type, you know, primate that we, we cut off from, you know, I talked about this with Bill von Hippel. There appears to have been a rise in the land due to tectonic plate shift on the East African shelf and the East African rift valley raised up, meaning that the forest changed a little bit and the forest became grassland. And probably what happened was all the primates on one side of that rift became humans or our ancestors and everything on the left side remained primates because the primate ancestors that we had, something like Australopithecus, were forced to go out into the grassland and adapt to the land there. And that was really the beginning of what we see in humans. And we have fossils that go back, you know, six million years, more than that. But if you track the relative size of the brain in our ancestors, you can see some incredibly interesting things. The first point to note is that for 60 million years, six zero million years of primate evolution, eating plants did not cause the primate brain to grow. They've had the same size brain for 30 to 60 million years of eating mostly plants. A lot of primates do eat occasional animals when they can get their hands on them. They will eat other monkeys, but it's rare. And so 30 to 60 million years of that evolution, their brain size stayed the same. When the shift happened and we came out of the trees, our brain size started to go up a little bit. And then, you know, Australopithecus, Lucy is a fossil from 3.5 million years ago. Our brain is maybe 550 cc's. It's getting a little bit bigger. And then around 2.5 million years ago, there's a real inflection point in the graph of the size of the human brain as looking at when we look at the size of the skulls and the fossils. So something happened 2.5 million years ago. And there are two or three other things that we know in that same time that suggest that it was related to our hunting of animals that really was this spark, this trigger for human brain size to grow. And those were the evidence for human hunting, both in the grouping of skeletons and the appearance of what's called an Acheulean tool. And an Acheulean tool has been sharpened on both sides, and it's an intentionally made tool. It looks like a large arrowhead. And you can see there are these Acheulean tools that are moved around, meaning that our ancestral humans at that time realized their value and moved them from campsite to campsite. And there are marks on animal bones from that time suggesting they were butchering the animals with these Acheulean tools. So something happened, and there's really good evidence that it was the hunting of animals that allowed our brains to suddenly explode because of increased accessibility to calories and nutrients. Some have argued that it was fire, but the, the earliest evidence for fire is only a million years ago. So there's a 1.5 million year gap between the, when our brain size began to grow. And once it changed, our brain size grew rapidly. You know, it's a, like, it looks like a logarithmic curve. It goes kind of slightly up and then boom, there's an inflection point. It almost goes straight up. And over the next 1.5 million years, between 2.5 and 1 million years ago, our brain size grew from about 600 cc to about 900 cc. And then between, in the last 100, in the last 1 million years, our brain size went another jump from about 900 or 1,000 cc to 1,500 cc. So the trend continued. So something happened and it continued. And it, it looks like it was the eating of animals. And what we also see are, are collections of animal bones, like they were butchering them all together. They were working in groups to herd the animals and to find ways to hunt them in groups. So that is super interesting. And it probably wasn't fire because that didn't come along until later. But the story that we can reconstruct is that when we moved out of the trees, we were forced to do a little bit different things with our diets. And we probably started scavenging a little bit. We see all these adaptations in humans that suggest that we were more scavengers. And as we got more and more animal foods, scavenging and less of the plant foods, our brains got to grow a little bit, probably released a little bit of the breaks on the brain because we had more calories and more nutrients. And then 2.5 million years ago, we start hunting, we get a Shulian tools, we hunt in groups. And that was the magical thing. So what I suggest in the book is that hunting and eating animals made us human. We are who we are today because we ate animals. 
Now there's another nuance here that I'll just mention and then we'll move on from it. Some have talked about this amylase duplication. So there's a gene in our saliva that's common to all humans on the planet, or the majority, 99% of humans, and it's salivary amylase. And I actually just did a podcast with Chris Masterjohn where we talked about this. Now, salivary amylase is interesting. It's present in all humans, but it's not present in Neanderthal or Denisovans. And the lineages of humans are a little bit complex, but we'll sort it out. So we go from Australopithecus to probably Homo heidelbergensis, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, and then we go to Homo sapiens. Only within the last 350,000 years did Homo sapiens come around, probably from Homo erectus. But there are all these intermediate species of quote-unquote Homo, the Homo genus, habilis, erectus, heidelbergensis, et cetera, et cetera. And it's believed that it was a relative of Homo erectus that left Africa before Homo sapiens left Africa. Homo sapiens, our ancestors appear to have left Africa about 70,000 years ago, but it looks like Homo erectus left Africa before that, and that Homo erectus species is believed to have evolved into Neanderthals and Denisovans. Neanderthals were living in like the Neander Valley of Northern Europe, Denisovans I think were more over in Asia. But what we see is that neither Neanderthal nor Denisovans have amylase gene mutations. And some have argued that the fact that all Homo sapiens appear to have, or at least all of the people on the earth, appear to have come from an ancestor that had an amylase mutation, people suggest that that indicates that we were eating tubers at that time. And I would flip it around and say, actually what it suggests is that up until the split, up until Homo sapiens left Africa 70 to 80,000 years ago, we were not eating tubers because Neanderthal and Denisovans do not have an amylase gene mutation. So we don't know exactly when this mutation arose, but if you know, we know that probably as recently as 350 or even more recently in the human evolutionary time period, we did not have a, an amylase gene mutation. That suggests that the entire evolution of humans, if we had been eating a lot of tubers, we probably would have developed this amylase gene mutation, but we didn't. We didn't. And because Neanderthals and Denisovans don't have it. And so the fact that the Homo sapiens throughout the world have it now suggests that one of the reasons they might have left Africa was because of increasing food pressure or need to seek out new foods, hunting to extinction of the megafauna and increased consumption of tubers. But that's only in the recent, recent history. By that time, our brains had grown wildly and they were already much, much bigger than they were. You know, at that point, 350,000 years ago, our brains were probably, you know, 1,200, 1,300 cc's. So the majority of the curve, the majority of the human brain size curve is part of human evolution when we did not have an amylase gene mutation and we probably were not eating tubers. So this to me is just more proof or stronger suggestion that the majority of our evolution as humans, animal foods have been the major thing we've been eating. And, and tubers, although they're consumed by many hunter-gatherer groups today, are probably consumed out of necessity rather than an actual than, than like a unique benefit, right? And if you think about it, like ancestral tubers didn't look a whole like lot like sweet potatoes, but what is better nutrient-wise, a sweet potato or a piece of liver or steak? Like there's really no comparison here. You can get accessible calories from sweet potato or any tuber, but it doesn't have essential fatty acids. It doesn't really have a whole lot of zinc. It certainly doesn't have any selenium. There are so many more nutrients in animal foods. It's really comical when people suggest that tubers were the reason that our brains grew. I love that. That was so fascinating. I didn't understand that history and you broke it down really well for somebody like me. So that was really cool. I can't wait to read about that uh, in the book. You mentioned that in your book, there's also a plant toxicity spectrum of the worst offenders versus the ones that are not as bad. Could you let us know what are the worst ones out there? Okay. Yeah. So I would think about it this way. Plants and animals have been co-evolving for 450 million years and plants are stuck in the ground. So they've always had to evolve toxins. What are the most vulnerable parts of a plant? It's the seeds. The seeds of plants are the most vulnerable parts of plants. So colloquially, when we say seed, we think of only some foods. But in reality, grains, seeds, beans, and nuts are all seeds. These are all plant reproductive parts. And if a plant is putting energy into making a reproductive part or a baby, which is a seed is essentially a plant baby, they're going to put the most toxins in there to prevent animals from eating them. And we see this across the board. Everyone has heard, or many people have heard, that apple seeds are poisonous. They have cyanogenic glycosides. Almonds are evolved, not evolved. They've, they've been hybridized. We have bred them to become less toxic, but almonds are frankly toxic. They have cyanogenic glycosides as well. 
many of the stone fruits have cyanogenic glycosides, which are cyanide-containing substances in their seeds. So apricot pits, these are all quite, quite toxic seeds. Plants are like, do not eat this seed, you will get very sick. Because if you eat half of a seed, that seed will never grow. If a plant is full grown, like a tree, and you eat one or two leaves, it's not going to like it, but it's not going to kill the plant, right? So the seeds of plants, I think, are the most toxic parts. And this has also been talked about with regard to lectins. Where are lectins? They're in the seeds. They're in seeds, grains, legumes, and nuts. This is one of the things that I caution people about in keto is that, like, there's a lot of, of people push a lot of nuts in keto, and I just think, well, it's still a seed, and this is where I differ. You know, there's still going to be lectins. There's still going to be anti-nutrients. There's still going to be digestive enzyme inhibitors. There's still going to be phytic acid. Lots of things to really piss off our immune system in seeds. And then at the far right side, which is the toxic side as I visualize it, there's all the seeds and there's high oxalate containing foods. Those are probably the worst offenders. And so the high oxalate containing foods would be things like spinach, rhubarb, beets. Those are some of the bigger ones. Almonds are also pretty high. In the book, I've got a an oxalate sort of table that shows you how much oxalate is in food. So I think that if people wanted to eliminate the most toxic plant foods, they could eliminate all the seeds and the highest oxalate foods. And then just below that, I would place two categories of things that a lot of people might be surprised about. I would place like a lot of the leafy greens. So the brassica vegetables, I would place just below that. I think the brassicas are particularly toxic because they have evolved a really unique defense system this isothiocyanates defense system. So this involves glucosinolates and becoming isothiocyanates. So people may be familiar if they listen to Rhonda Patrick about glucoraphanin combining with the enzyme myrosinase to become sulforaphane. Glucoraphanin is a glucosinolate, myrosinase is an enzyme, sulforaphane is an isothiocyanate. Isothiocyanates are frankly toxic chemicals. And there are other isothiocyanates besides sulforaphane, but the one we hear about mostly is sulforaphane. There's also allyl isothiocyanate. And these molecules are very reactive from an oxidative stress perspective. They are pro-oxidants in the human body. And so this is just, it's just a booby trap that all brassicates have evolved. They've all got glucosinolates, which become isothiocyanates when you chew them. In a piece of broccoli or a piece of kale, there is no sulforaphane. There's zero. It's only when you chew that plant that the myrosinase combines, right, in the chemical reaction and boom, you get isothiocyanate. Isothiocyanate would be toxic to broccoli and kale just like it's toxic to us because it's pro-oxidant. It's going to run around scavenging electrons, creating free radicals. Plants don't want that. They hold it in a more stable form until something chews it and then they release the toxin. We see the same pattern with things like cassava, which is a root in South America, that's widely eaten, that's frankly toxic. There's a molecule called linamarin, an enzyme called linamarinase, and the toxin is hydrocyanic acid. So super, super toxic, but this compound, this, this booby trap that plants have made where they will take this compound that's inert and an enzyme that makes it into a toxin that's only gonna work when you chew on the plant, when the plant gets killed, we see this over and over. And it really is clearly an indication that plants are setting booby traps. Goonies was like my favorite movie growing up, right? This is data, booby traps, right? Plants are setting booby traps for us. They're, these compounds are not around until you chew the plant. So brassica vegetables all have that booby trap and we want to avoid that. And then, you know, I put sweet fruits at the far end of the spectrum as well. I'm just not sure that, that for human metabolism, eating fruits with lots of fructose is a good thing. And so those are the, main, the mainly the, the most toxic foods. In the middle is the tubers, and there are some tubers that are, I think, more damaging than others. Oh, I also, on the far right side, I put nightshades. So tomatoes, uh, bell peppers, eggplants, Eggplant, potatoes. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people are maybe familiar with sort of the immunogenic potential for the nightshade vegetables. In the middle, I put the tubers because I think that some of them are worse than others. I mean, sweet potatoes have a decent amount of oxalates. And then on the left side, so the least toxic plants, I would consider to be like non-sweet fruits, maybe some things like olives, avocado, and maybe some of the leafy greens that are not brassicates, maybe things like arugula or lettuce. Um, so, you know, you can think like, is this a seed? Is this a brassica? Is this a high oxalate food? Is this a sweet fruit? Is this a nightshade? Those I think are the ones that, that harm us the most and people may debate the fruit, but the other ones are pretty pretty clear and then you can move to the other side. I think berries are probably less toxic than sweet fruits, 
But again, I'm not convinced that they represent a unique thing. So I'll just say one more word about sulforaphane because that really gets people kind of revved up when I talk about it because of the concept of hormesis and I want to explain this. Yeah, I was going to ask you. Perfect. Yeah. So let's just talk about xenohormesis for a moment. And this is something that I think is very counterculture, but it's, it's something that I believe in very strongly and I want to get this message out there. When we think about hormesis, hormesis, I believe, exists. Hormesis is the concept that a little bit of a poison can make us stronger. We see this illustrated throughout our lives with things like radiation. We're getting radiation all the time. The sun, we fly in a plane, like it creates some DNA breaks and our body can kind of deal with it. If we get too much, we know it's a toxin. So people, people might be familiar with this concept of a U-shaped curve, you know? If you get a middle bit, a middle bit, you know, it depends how, how much, how big that middle part of the U is there's maybe a benefit, but if you get too much, it's going to be toxic. Everybody knows too much radiation is going to cause subsequent cancers, et cetera, et cetera. So there's probably a reasonable dose. And other things we do in our lives are hormetics, like exercise, heat stress, cold stress. These are the same things. Exercise can activate similar pathways. It can activate antioxidant response pathways. A little bit of exercise breaks us down, then we get stronger, right? Now, and that's where the effect ends. That's where the effect ends. It just does that one thing whether it's heat stress, cold stress, exercise, sunlight, daily radiation, these are all normal hormetics. And the difference here is that when we introduce a molecule from a plant and call it a hormetic, we will see, we can see similar effects. We can see activation of the NRF2 system in the liver, and that's what sulforaphane does. And one of the things sulforaphane does, and that's why we're told it's good for us. But the problem with plant molecules is that we are never told about the other bad things they do. And we see this invariably. In addition to doing that in the liver, sulforaphane also circulates in the blood and competes with iodine at the level of the thyroid for uptake, interfering with thyroid hormone synthesis and affecting normal hormonal patterns. Throughout the world, people may be familiar with uh, indigenous people who have a very large swollen neck. This is called a goiter, from, usually from hypothyroidism related to excessive consumption of isothiocyanate containing foods in areas where they're not getting enough iodine. So the question becomes this, why would we take a molecule like sulforaphane that has bad side effects if it doesn't have a unique benefit? And this is what is often forgotten about. If I give you ibuprofen or any medication from my doctor's pharmacy, there's an insert that has all the side effects and it's my responsibility to tell you these are the side effects of this molecule. We never think about plant molecules that way, but it's exactly the same. Plant molecules may have effects in the human body, but they also have side effects. And these side effects are what are collaterally damaging, and these are what are commonly ignored. And so the hypothesis or the premise that I advance strongly in the book is, why would you rely on plant compounds when they don't provide a unique benefit? If we can get all of the glutathione we need by living well, sauna, cold, exercise, sunlight, and there's no evidence, there is zero evidence, which is true, there is zero evidence that adding broccoli to your diet increases your glutathione or improves your antioxidant status long-term, then all you're getting there is negative side effects without any potential benefit. And you can get all those antioxidant benefits just by living a normal human life and eating other good food. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Have you spoken to Rhonda Patrick? Have you, have you had a conversation with her? She never engages. Hmm. I would love to see I talked to David Sinclair about this. I had David Sinclair on my podcast and we spoke about this. And so David Sinclair is a proponent of the molecule resveratrol. This is a great example. Now, resveratrol seems to affect a certain site on the sirtuin enzymes, activating these sirtuin enzymes. And these activation of the sirtuin enzymes can also be achieved by altering the NAD to NADH balance and the cytosol. And so people have also gotten excited about supplemental NAD in various forms, nicotinamide riboside or... Uh, nicotinamide adenine denucleotide, or excuse me, NAD or NMN, which is nicotinamide mononucleotide. But the thing is this, when we look in the human body, resveratrol does activate the sirtuins, but it also has side effects. And this is what I challenged David about. Resveratrol has been shown to inhibit the production of DHEA, which is an androgen precursor. Resveratrol has been shown to worsen glycemic control. Resveratrol has been shown to do other negative things in the human body to affect DNA transcription in a negative way because these plant molecules have side effects. Plants are basically pharmacies. It's like whether you go to the pharmacy at CVS, you get a medication, or you go to the plant pharmacy to get a medication, you're getting a medication. 
we have to remember that any molecule, any medicine we take is going to have a side effect. And this is what we're always ignoring. We're ignoring that plant molecules, they're not designed for humans. They happen to have effects in us, just like other molecules that we can synthesize or that are synthesized by bacteria can affect us, but they all have side effects and we can't ignore the plant molecule side effects. And so, like I said before, at the risk of repeating myself, I'll just say again, why take a molecule with side effects if there's no net benefit in humans? It's only going to bring us down, right? Throughout our evolution, I do think we've eaten them, and I think that we have had a chance to detoxify them, right? We might have had an ancestral mustard plant from time to time, although I'm not sure our ancestors really did because it's really bitter, and there's not a lot of nutrition or calories. But when we did that, we could detoxify it and get rid of it. Eating it every day is not a good idea. You're just putting more and more and more plant toxins into your body and you're interrupting your normal thyroid function. In, that's in the case of sulforaphane. In the case of resveratrol, you can affect your hormones negatively. And how can we also turn on the sirtuins? A ketogenic diet turns on the sirtuins because it affects the NAD to NADH ratio in the cytoplasm in the same way. And this has been shown. This has been shown in both animal and human models. That, that a ketogenic diet positive, well, increases the NAD to NADH ratio, which will turn on all of the, the transcription factors and molecules that are dependent on NAD, the PARP enzymes for DNA repair, the sirtuins, which affect the transcription of FOXO3 and other longevity genes, MT2, methylopinine 2. So we can use what I call living a radical life, you know, occasionally fasting or eating low carbohydrate diets, exercise, sun, cold, heat exposure, that will get us to optimal antioxidant status and genetic turning on longevity genes. We don't need exogenous plant molecules to do that, and we can forego all the side effects of those molecules if we shun those molecules. This is the major under misunderstanding of xenohormesis. People think, oh, look, it does something good. Yeah, well, so does ibuprofen. But nobody's going to take ibuprofen for their whole life because we know that ibuprofen has bad side effects, right? We know that I can give you an anti-inflammatory molecule, ibuprofen, or I mean, maybe aspirin, uh, acetylsalicylic acid is a better example because that one comes from a plant, that comes from willow bark. If you're in pain, I can give you that molecule and you will find benefit from it from the pain. But we also know that it will affect prostaglandin synthesis and can harm your kidneys, right? Same thing, we, we accept this with, with pharmaceutical medications, but we're blind to it with plant molecules. But it's the exact same equation. So the question is, why do you need ibuprofen in the first place? If you don't need ibuprofen, you don't take ibuprofen. That's not a good idea. If you don't need sulforaphane, you shouldn't take sulforaphane. We don't need resveratrol. We don't need sulforaphane. We don't need curcumin, which is yet another plant molecule that has the exact same sort of story. Curcumin can be an anti-inflammatory, but it also can do negative things with its, with its side effects, just like the anti-inflammatories. Curcumin does a little different things. It can affect topoisomerase 2, the winding and uncoiling of DNA. That's not a good thing. It can affect the potassium channel called the HERG channel. It's been shown to affect the oncogene P53 in a negative way. All these molecules have side effects, but because of the supplement industry, they're sold to us as a panacea. This is from a plant. This won't harm you. Well, where do you think we get most of our pharmaceutical molecules from that are in drugs, right? They're from plants too. Somebody could just take curcumin, make it in a pill and give it to you. And people would say, whoa, that's got a lot of side effects. You don't want to take that. And you know, they would, oh, they would realize that. But when it's in an orange root or an orange powder, we're blind to it, right? Where, do, I mean, the majority of the, the molecules, I, should, I don't know if it's the actual majority, but a large proportion of the molecules we use in pharmaceuticals and medicine are derived from plants. And we know they have side effects. And the question is, if you don't need those molecules, why would you take them? These are not vitamins and minerals. This is not like folate, biotin, riboflavin, right? These are not building blocks of humans. Antioxidants, quote unquote, in plants do not directly scavenge free radicals in the human body. I should repeat that. Antioxidants, quote unquote, is a complete misnomer. They're all pro-oxidants. And that sounds like a blanket statement, but it's true. Plant molecules do not participate in the direct scavenging of free radicals in the human body. They do not, that's not how it works. They create more of our endogenous antioxidants by triggering NRF2 and glutathione. And that is how they work. But we can do that on our own by living healthfully and forego all the side effects associated with it. Does that make sense? It's kind of a tricky concept. Yeah, yeah, it, it makes sense. And it was, it, was, it was very dense. So this is something you're going to listen to a couple times, audience, for sure. But that is so fascinating because it's the complete opposite of what's being taught out there, especially when it comes to veganism, which I'm not a proponent of. But 
I have, I have a lot of questions. I'm running out of time, and my mind is like racing with all these questions, but I want to ask a few things here that I, I think is important. There are side effects, and there's an effect to these plant foods. You broke that down very well, and I agree with that. Are there any side effects to eating just animal meat? Are there any things that could be negative to just eating animal meat that you'll see? I know they're different than plant foods, but what are the side effects of eating animal meat? You know, animals don't make defense compounds like plants do. So that's the first difference. That's the big difference between animals. Because if you try and shoot or wrestle a deer, for instance, you're going to get gored by an antler. They have the ability to defend themselves. So there are zero molecules in, well, that's not true. In the majority of animal foods, there are no defense molecules. There are some things like the puffer fish have like a, a small thing that's like toxic, but the majority of fish and ruminants and birds don't have like toxins in their muscles to dissuade animals from eating them. There are these poisonous frogs in the Amazon that you wouldn't want to go eating, right? But by and large, animals have not evolved defense molecules like plants have. So it's a very different thing, right? It's a fantastic question because of the potential symmetry. And this is when they're not cooked. A lot of people say like, what about the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and the heterocyclic amines? Yeah, when you cook, when humans cook any food, whether it's plants or animals, there are products of cooking formed that need to be detoxified by our bodies. And these are usually heterocyclic amines in animal foods. If you smoke meats, which I'm not a huge fan of, you'll get polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. But if you cook plants, you can make acrylamide just as well, or you can make other problems. So when you take a piece of toast and you put it in the toaster, all the brown stuff is like acrylamide. And you can create advanced glycation end products, um, which are separate from acrylamide. But you can the cooking of food, whether it's carbohydrate-based plants or animal foods, will create some toxins for humans. Now, whether if you can do the same thing with plants or animal foods, the lower temperature you cook it, if you cook it in water, there's going to be less of these, right? So if we make a stew with animal foods, or we do like low temperature cooking of animal meat or low temperature cooking of plant foods, there's going to be less of the cooking toxins. The higher we cook, the higher temperature and the faster we cook anything, whether it's a baked potato or a piece of steak, we're going to get some of these compounds. But intrinsic to the food itself, plant compounds have many, many more toxins. And the toxins in the animal food kingdom are very rare and only found in very, very small species that are preyed upon by a bunch of other stuff. They developed it for the same reasons. But the majority of the time, you know, whether it's an elk, a deer, a buffalo, a cow, a goat, a sheep, a pig, there's no toxins in the muscles to dissuade predation in, in the same way there are with plant foods. And I also, I also think it's important to distinguish between a quality carnivore diet, which is based off of grass-fed, grass-finished products and quality animals versus the stuff that's fed grains because you're still getting those plant toxins if you're eating carnivore, but they were fed grains, correct? Well, this is a nuanced question that's quite interesting. Um, I do think that, you know, you know, Rob Wolf has, I think, appropriately pointed out that the nutritional composition of grass-fed and grain-fed meat are actually pretty similar. But, and this is a big but, I think there's good evidence that grain-fed meat is going to be higher in toxins. And it's not necessarily the toxins from the plants, but the toxins that are applied to the plant food. Then you're going to bioaccumulate pesticides and mold that is on the lower quality grains that grain-fed animals are fed, right? So there's, I did a podcast with Anthony J. We talked about aflatoxin, which has xenoestrogen in it. So aflatoxin is a mold or atrazine. So aflatoxin is a mold that's going to have toxins. Atrazine is a pesticide sprayed on grains. It's going to have more of these xenoestrogenic hormone-disrupting things. So when you're eating grain-fed animals, you are getting bioaccumulation of pesticides sprayed on the grains, which can be hormone-disrupting. That's why I don't eat the grain-fed meat if I can avoid it, and I basically never eat it. Now, an interesting thing that was pointed out to me by a friend who's a rancher is that if grass in the field is going to seed, right, is making grains on grass, that's what grass does, it goes to seed, it makes grains, cows will eat that, and that's actually reasonable food for cows. But the problem with grain-fed animals is that they are given moldy old grains, which are sprayed with glyphosate, atrazine, et cetera, et cetera. That's the difference there in my opinion. And when cows are packaged into a feedlot, we know that that destroys the land and they're not sort of kept in the same way. They're drinking from troughs of water that are potentially contaminated with more persistent organic pollutants. And so, yeah, the quality of the meat matters, uh, but there's some nuance there.
I want to just briefly, uh, and if you could do it in less than two minutes, that would be great. Give us a synopsis. I know you just did a podcast on your on your podcast and Ask Me Anything podcast. And you went deep into Game Changers, the Game Changers documentary, which is all about a proponent of a plant-based diet. There's a lot of money behind a lot of propaganda. Just give us a synopsis and break it down if you can within two minutes. So there are so many different little sketches within that movie. I would encourage people to, to listen to my Game Changers breakdown with Ryan Lowry, um, where we did a full hour and a half or hour and 40 minutes about the entire movie. And then I did talk about it on my AMA podcast as well. But Game Changers is kind of more of the same. They will rely on epidemiology to make claims that are not fully supported by the science and that are inflated. And then they will rely on non-scientific experiments with shock value, like the cloudy blood experiment or the erections experiment with different burritos to prove their point that plant-based diets are healthier. Perhaps the biggest misconception or biggest untruth in Game Changers is that they really didn't present the athletes honestly. If you look at the performance of the athletes featured in Game Changers, it's pretty abysmal. There's a runner in Game Changers, and there's some supposed strongmen who are not actually really that competitive at all. And I did an interview on my podcast that will be released soon with an English free runner named Tim Sheaf, who was a vegan for six years. And he was actually in Game Changers and got so sick and stopped being a vegan before they published the movie that he asked them to take him out of it. So this is an illustration of the fact that the to suggest that vegan diets are giving people superpowers in the athletic realm is just false. It's just so misleading. And when they try and create science to support this, they have these fabricated inaccurate experiments that are not reflective of true human physiology, They're not even really scientifically rigorous, and they incessantly quote epidemiology without giving people the whole story behind it. Yeah, and it's doing much, much more harm than it is good. It's unfortunate, but but people like you or trailblazers who are getting the information out there really help people get empowered with the right information. And we don't want them to just believe us. We want them to have the information and do some research, and they'll come across their truth. So uh, thank you for breaking that down in less than two minutes. Good job. I'm, I'm kind of long-winded. I'm sorry. No, no, dude, I love You were going on some rants, and I love it. I was like, yeah, man, go. Go for it, dude. You, I, I could tell you're passionate about this, so I'm all for it. I'm all for it. We'll do another podcast next year when your book comes out, and we'll get to the other questions. I have my, my final question, which is, is there any culture in the history of this world that ever stuck with the same diet long term? Well, I'm not sure what you mean by long term. Uh, let's classify that as five years or more. I mean, I don't think we know, and I think that there is. I mean, I think that seasonally, every culture on the planet throughout recent human history, there's variation in every human diet. Okay. Certainly, I mean, people have cited examples of the Maasai, the Mongols, the Inuits, and a few other cultures as being mostly animal-based. There are many examples of cultures that appear to be fertile and healthy and, and vigorous, eating mostly animal-based diets. Are there any cultures on the planet that's completely shun plants? No, there aren't, you know? And that's a valid point that's been off, been brought up repeatedly. And I don't know, I think that, you know, there's a main question there, you know, is are they using the plants for entertainment? Are they using the plants for calories? Or is there actually really just, they're, they're eating the plants because they're there and they give it some variety or something, who knows? But um, as I just mentioned in my book, I really feel that well, sort of the premise of my work is that that animal foods are the best foods for humans and that plant foods are just survival foods. And I think we see that illustrated repeatedly throughout cultures. I think that seasonally there's always variation. When there's more food around, people eat it. I mean, this is the Pandora's box concept of human experience. If you and I are in the woods and we walk by a bush of raspberries, we're probably going to eat them, you know? Like we're not just gonna be like, eh, raspberries, I don't want them. Unless we're on the trail of an elk and in order to eat the raspberries, we're going to have to like give up the hunt of this out. So, but, you know, for the majority of the year throughout the world, those kind of foods are not available and they're in competition. You're in competition with other animals and mold and decay, even when they are available. So I think that there's a lot less plant food that's edible than people think in the wilderness and in the natural world. And um, I think humans ate a whole lot less of it than we are led to believe. Um, but I think there is some seasonal and, latitude variation in terms of what humans eat. But I do think that within cultures, there, there definitely has been some 
consistency among their diet for periods that are much longer than five years. Yeah. With seasonal Great. variation taken into account. Right. Great answer. And uh, you make a very compelling argument. You're, you know what you're talking about. It's obvious. I can't wait to read your book. I encourage the, the listeners and the viewers, because it's going to be on YouTube, to go pre-order uh, Paul's book. What's the link again for your book, the pre-order? So you can go to thecarnivorecodebook.com, and that will take you to a landing page with a link to Indigo River, which is my publisher. So you'll see the book. If you go to thecarnivorecodebook.com, you'll, get, you'll see the, the cover and table of contents, a bit about me, and there'll be a link there to pre-order. And you also have a YouTube channel. You're putting out a lot of good content on YouTube. I see you becoming more cons- consistent on there. So uh, it's just Paul Saladino on YouTube? Paul Saladino, MD. It's where I repost all my podcasts. I want to do more on there, but there's only so much I can do. Right oh, yeah, I know, right? There's so much. And you, you've, been, you've been busy. So go check them out on social media. Anywhere else you want to direct them? Uh, just the main place is my website. Go to carnivoremd.com. That's where you want to go. That's where all my stuff is. I've got links to all my social there. All my past podcasts are there. All the podcasts I've been on, you can find everything there. I want to acknowledge you and say thank you so much for spreading your knowledge. And you're just a trailblazer, like I said at the beginning of the podcast. And you're doing a lot of uh, interesting work. I'm so fascinated by this. And I'm going to do some more research on this. Uh, And you really did a great job on this episode, Paul. So I want to acknowledge you and say thank you for the work that you're doing. You are a relentless brother. And you are brilliant, man. You're a very smart, intelligent guy. So thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me on, man. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. It was really informational for myself. And be sure to check him out, pre-order his book, go to his website, carnivoremd.com, go listen to his podcast, Fundamental Health, look him up on YouTube. We'll make sure we put notes and links and descriptions and timestamps and everything you want in the notes of this podcast. We have a professional podcast notes person, Rachel. Shout out to Rachel, who puts this all together for you in a structure so you could go and explore some more. So go take advantage of that. Be sure to leave this show, the Keto Camp Podcast, if you have any gotten any value from it, please leave it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Apple iTunes. It really helps the show out. Take a screenshot on your phone, tag me and Dr. Paul Saladino on Instagram. I'll be sure to see it and share it on my Instagram story. My Instagram handle is at thebenazadi, that is T-H-E-B-E-N-A-Z-A-D-I, and Dr. Paul's Instagram is carnivoremd. Hey, if you wanna get a 12-page ebook designed to teach you how to burn fat instead of sugar and practice keto and fasting and do it the right way, I have a free guide for you over at ketokickstartsguide.com. You can get a free download. There's also a a sample meal plan in there for you as well. And then lastly, head over to YouTube if you want to watch the video version of this interview with Dr. Paul Saladino. I also have a ton of amazing videos on the Keto Camp YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash Keto Camp. Hey, thank you, Keto Camper, so much for listening to this entire episode through. You'll hear me on the next one. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.